From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. We are starting today talking with BC's representative for children and youth. And Dr. Jennifer Charlesworth has released a new report. It is entitled Still Left Out, Children and Youth with Disabilities in BC. It is calling on the provincial government to come forward with some much needed supports for children and youth. And this comes after another report, the first one released a few years ago. So has much changed? Well, Dr. Jennifer Charlesworth joined joins me on the line now to talk more about this. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Jill. Can you remind us a little bit, the first report left out focused a lot more on on how families and young people with disabilities were coping in the midst of a pandemic. Does this follow up on that or how are the two related? Yes, thanks for asking. The two are related um, because in 2020, when we did the left out report, the first one, we were taking a look at the impact of the pandemic on young people. And in doing that, what we learned was that the concerns that young, uh, that young people had and that their families had actually predated the pandemic, that the issues pertaining to kids with disabilities were longstanding and they were exacerbated by the pandemic. So we issued recommendations at that time, um, uh, suggestions at that time about how the ministry could respond, how government could respond. And then subsequent to that, we did another report in 2021 pertaining to kids with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. And we issued a number of recommendations at that time. And so this report actually goes back to those very same families that we spoke with in 2020 and 2021 to say has anything changed? What's your life like now? Here we are post-pandemic, quote-unquote, and uh, we've had these recommendations out there. How is your life now? What's going on? So those are how everything is related. All right. So I I know this new report also has a number of recommendations, and we will get to those. But I know you also talked about, and when answered, what has changed or what has improved, the uh, unfortunate uh, response was that not a lot has changed. That's correct. There are some things, and I'll give government credit, they have done some important investments and they are working through a number of things. Progress has been made in a number of recommendations that we have made, but the reality, the lived reality of families is that not much has changed. These ideas, the intentions have yet to fully roll out, and so their lived experience day by day by day is still very, very, very difficult. So we really wanted to start by situating the experience of families because we have to remember that we're all here to try and support kids and their families in order for them to thrive. So this is the first in a series of reports that we're going to be doing between now and June and we wanted to start by telling the family stories first. And for them, not much has changed. And when looking at some of the highlights of this as well, or some of those stories that were highlighted or are highlighted in this report, a couple of things stand out. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit. I think that there are disabilities and situations where people might make the assumption that there is support, that there is coverage, but it seems like there are a lot of things that have no coverage in this province. That's correct. The uh, system as it has been designed has, over time, is quite piecemeal and it's favoring certain diagnoses. So if you have an autism spectrum diagnosis, there's 
um, a greater array of services and supports available to you. If you have, for example, Down syndrome or uh, fetal alcohol spectrum or certain other neurocognitive developmental, those were never covered to the extent that other diagnoses were. So it's been very inequitable across the disability spectrum. And so that's something that government has said they're committing to it, committed to addressing over time. But it's going to be a few years before we have a new strategy or a new plan that gets rolled out. So in the meantime, what we've been saying is, for goodness sakes, there's no, no one who's more or less deserving of support. So let's move towards providing the support for those who are currently not receiving anything and make sure that those who are receiving something are not facing the loss of anything. So let's rise everybody up, not take anybody down. Right. And I think that people would would hear that and would agree. That makes a lot of sense. One of the other findings from this, I think, even goes further and and might be surprising to people that here we are in B.C. and that there are parents that are so unsupported and, and so in need of care that they are actually placing their children in government care? Yes. This is one of the hardest things, and I'll tell you, we've just, I've just come back from spending a week. We spent time in the interior, and then we were up in the northwest in, in Prince Rupert, Smithers, Terrace, Houston, Kitimat, meeting with families. And this was in addition to the meeting with families that we did for the report I released yesterday. And it was gut-wrenching, and there were a number of times that my team and I came out and I was in tears because these beautiful families um, who love their kids dearly are saying, I feel so inadequate. I don't even know that I'm safe anymore because I'm so exhausted. Everything is so hard that maybe my child should go into care because maybe they'll get what they'll need and it will be better than what I can offer them. So they are facing an incredibly difficult situation because they can't get the resources or their child isn't able to, to be eligible for things and they feel like the only choice for the well-being of their child is for them to come into care, and maybe that will unleash some of the resources. I, I had a conversation with a mom last week who's an incredibly sophisticated advocate, and she actually did place her daughter in care for a period of time because she said, no one was listening to me about the kinds of challenges that we were facing. We had, we were at the end of our rope. We had no other option child came into care and then the ministry went, oh my goodness, <laughs> you know, did provide the resources and eventually she was able to come back. But with the ministry now understanding that the mom was serious about what this child needed, well, that shouldn't have to happen. And I know there's not lots of situations like that, but there are enough that we should be taking note Well, continuing now, my guest is Dr. Jennifer Charlesworth, BC's representative for children and youth, and talking about a new report called Still Left Out, Children and Youth with Disabilities in BC. And just before the break, we were talking about how some parents are making the extremely difficult decision to actually put their children in care because they do not have the supports. They are not getting the support they need for their children at home. So Dr. Charlesworth, I'm I'm curious why it is in a system where, again, heartbreaking to think of anybody making that decision. But why is it set up in the way that a family can't get the supports that are necessary, but once the child is put into care, those supports are then made available? Yes, and it's a good question. Um, I think it comes down to um, 
old belief systems about the families are responsible for what goes on within their family. And we don't recognize that some families need boosts. Some families need different kinds of help and that we shouldn't be um, discriminating or judging them for not being able to do everything that their child needs and instead say, ooh, you know, you're stretched here or your child has very complex needs and you're trying to figure this out on your own. So how can we assist you be successful and how can we assist you and your child to thrive? And I think it's just some outdated, outdated beliefs that we all have. I think it's a societal thing um, of, you know, families, they've got to figure things out on their own. And if they don't figure things out on their own, then they're somehow to blame. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to challenge some of those outdated assumptions And I think there's also an understandable reluctance saying, you know, well, should we pay a parent to take care of their own child? Well, no, we're not saying that we should pay a parent to take care of their own child. But could we provide some resources that would enable them to get the respite care or the additional supports and that kind of thing that would that would help them be able to provide the care that their kids need? And for many of these kids, their their needs are very complex. This is not not easy. And as one mom said to me yesterday, I love my child so much and there's so many beautiful things that he's doing and he's doing so well, but I can't even celebrate that because there's so much that's so hard that I can't get for him and I worry for him every day. Hmm. And even if you take the emotion out of it and not suggesting that, mm-hmm. that we do that, but even if you just for, separate the two, uh, the, what the actual human stories and the dollars and cents, and and if you're looking at it from a, a dollar's point of view, is it not even more cost-effective to be keeping kids in their homes with their families, to be supporting them that way? It seems like it would be far more expensive to be putting people in care. Oh, absolutely. And I'm not a health economist or an economist in that way, but um, some work that I did many years ago would suggest absolutely that this would be uh, beneficial in the long run. And to give some concrete examples, we're seeing some children who are very young, uh, six, seven, eight years of age, that are in what's called staffed care. Their needs are very, very significant, and their parents are not able to, to meet their needs um, because they aren't getting the, the, the supports or because the family is not able at that point to, to care for their child. So now we're talking about group home care, staffed, you know, two, to, uh, two staff on at any one point in time, 24-7 care. Now, that's a lot of money. <laughs> now, it may not be that that child would be able to be in, a, in their family home um, certainly some kids do need to come into care and be in protective care, but many you're seeing situations where the parents are voluntarily um, giving up care of their child in order to get the supports that they need. And you're absolutely right, it is costly. But, uh, you know, so cost and the moral imperative. Right. Uh, and, and just to, to go back, so the, the recommendations, I know you have made many recommendations for, for changes, uh, many in this report, in previous reports as well. Uh, the government has done some work on this. What would you like to see addressed immediately or what do you think the priority is right now? Well, there's a couple of things that we've been learning. Um, the ministry and government has allocated some additional money, which is wonderful. The challenge is that there are no staff. So they can say we've, you know, we've allocated money for another um, uh, group of therapists, 30 therapists a year over the next three years, but there aren't any therapists. 
<laughs> to be had, we've got a workforce shortage. So one of the immediate things is to begin to address and take very seriously those workforce shortages and try and incentivize through um, perhaps loan forgiveness programs or increasing the seats for physiotherapy or occupational therapy or speech-language therapy. If we don't start now, we're not going to make any progress for the years down ahead. So we've got a, a significant workforce shortage. So that's important. The other thing that's an immediate thing is many parents did not know, as we've been going around the province, and we also did a survey of over a 1,000 parents, they had no idea what were they were even eligible for. So it's wonderful to have the programs, but for goodness sakes, if parents don't know or if they feel like they have to go through many, many hoops in order to even find out what their child might be eligible for, that's on us. As a, as a service delivery system, parents have a right to know what's available to them, and then they can take advantage, you know, have access to them. So there's a significant communications challenge that we see right away um, that could be addressed, and that's not a difficult thing to address. There are also some situations that are specific to certain areas of the province where parents are having to make a very difficult choice of. Um, you go for this program or you go for this program, but you can't have both, neither of which are, are viable alternatives, each of which have some kind of benefit, um, but not they're not fully viable alternatives. And we're going to be recommending right away, uh, based on our just the recent conversations, is you know, help parents make informed choices, don't push them over to the ledge. All right. Well, uh, it's a very, very interesting report. Uh, Dr. Jennifer Charlesworth, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much. Thank you very much for your time. Just before the news, we played some of the update from earlier today from Dr. Bonnie Henry uh, talking about cold and flu season as well, COVID-19, and talking about the different vaccinations available. We've also heard about an active case of tuberculosis, and this has been detected at the University of Victoria. So seems like a good time to check in with Jason Tetro, who is a microbiologist with a specialty in studying emerging, emerging pathogens. Jason, thank Thank you so much. Has it, it's been a while since we've talked. Yeah, I know. Uh, I mean, it hasn't really been all that busy in the <laughs> microbiology world. I guess that's a good thing. That I is. I think a lot of people would agree. <laughs> perhaps that is a, that is a good thing. Um, before we talk about kind of the the better known or the more common or respiratory illnesses, I'm curious your thoughts mm-hmm. on on this report. Uh, the University of Victoria saying there is an active case of tuberculosis. Uh, it has been detected on the campus. Uh, the person is self isolating being diagnosed and those who have been in close contact have been told about this. How concerning is it that there is a case of tuberculosis? Well, I mean, one individual case isn't really all that important because in the grand scheme of things in British Columbia, you're looking at around 250 to 300 cases. That's the big picture. The small picture is when you are in close contact with another individual who has tuberculosis, you are in a high-risk scenario. So, of course, anyone in the university campus who may have associated with this individual definitely is at risk. And so, in that context, you can see how 
there could be a little bit of worry going on there. And of course, you're not going to mention who that individual happens to be, but I'm sure that those who are close contacts will have been contacted and now they're going to have to go through the testing process. And how do you think it is? And like you said, so we have about 250 to 300 new diagnoses of this disease every year. But again, it's not something we hear about a whole lot. So how how could this lung infection where would somebody have gotten it? So the lung infection itself is actually not all that common, but it's still fairly common within the Canadian context. Uh, If you look at some of the data, it says about 4.7 cases for every 100,000 people. So there's quite a number in a country that's 35 million. So in that light, you can see that some individuals will probably be feeling kind of sick. Um, They'll have respiratory problems. They're not going to feel all that great. But it's going to continue on and on and on, which is what tuberculosis does. But you're not going to actually know what it is. And so in that sense, we have a lot of people who are walking around with tuberculosis who don't realize that they have it. Um, Now, in terms of Canada versus, say, other countries where there's a high level of tuberculosis, um, such as the the Baltic regions, you know, in that case, it's a, it's rampant everywhere and they're doing what they can. Here, it's still at a low enough level that we don't really talk about it all that much, but it still exists here in, in this country. Is it more concerning than, say, RSV or other, let's say, bronchitis or other types of, of chest infections? Uh, yes and no. So the no is that um, the immediate acute problems that we see with RSV, which could lend you in the hospital uh, with, you know, we used to have to deal with with SARS-CoV-2 before vaccinations. And even with influenza, if you don't happen to have a very good immune system, that doesn't exist so much with tuberculosis because it's a very slow growing bacterium. I used to study this many, many years ago. And what it ends up doing is it creates this sort of chronic infection inside of your lungs. And then much, many, many years down the road, what will end up happening is it'll go into what we call an active form. And that's when it becomes a massive risk for health. Um, But sort of in that short term, when it's just being diagnosed, there's a really good opportunity for you to be able to take those antimicrobials and get rid of it. And and uh, is it something though? And again, because we don't talk about it all that often, is it not something mm-hmm. that that we've been most people have have they been vaccinated against it? Uh, well, there's no real vaccine against tuberculosis. It's just that it hasn't really been around mm. per se. And so in that sense, it's just that we've had a really good opportunity to be able to fight it. And unfortunately, there have been two situations that have led to its sort of um, resurgence across the world. One is that people who are infected with HIV tend to have a higher risk for tuberculosis. And in, in many cases, uh, well, in many areas of the world, low and middle-income countries, that's where it's really flared up. And now in some areas where they do not have a high enough income uh, in terms of being able to have a very strong healthcare system, we're also seeing higher levels. And in Canada, and, and I, I hate saying this, but it's so true, you know, that 4.7% population for Canada goes up to 127 per 100,000 when we talk about Indigenous peoples. So, mm. I mean, that that's essentially how it's happening. We need to have a stronger healthcare system for those who have less access to it.
All right. So that's that's what's happening with uh, tuberculosis. And again, not something yeah. we talk about all that much. We did get an update earlier today as well from our provincial health officer. Uh, something she talked about was the amount of um, the, the number of people that now in BC, mm-hmm. I suppose in the country as well, but looking at BC, who probably have had yeah. COVID, who maybe got vaccinated once or twice, maybe three times or more, and they have that kind of hybrid immunity. What do what are we looking mm-hmm. at as far as going in? Because I, I do think that we're seeing some fatigue as far as not not everybody certainly is getting another shot of the vaccine, maybe is letting it slide this year. So what are we looking at as far as, or can we anticipate what this respi- respiratory illness season is going to look like? Yeah, so when we talk about the big one, uh, COVID-19, we're seeing a lot of people coming up to get that uh, new shot, the XBB shot. And the reason is that all the previous shots are going to give you some protection, but the XBB is actually going to be able to help you really fight this off so you only have minimal symptoms. In fact, uh, it's funny, I have a friend, his mother ended up actually getting the new XBB COVID-19. She's in her 80s and uh, she was vaccinated just a couple weeks before that. She's got sniffles and maybe a little chill here. She, and she's just doing her thing as usual. It's just wonderful to hear. Um, so in that sense, it's really good to see people stepping up. Now, one thing that you have to understand, and we're going to talk about the flu in this case, about 40% of the population ever get the flu shot uh, in, in any given year. Okay, And so with about a million people in British Columbia, we're about halfway. Well, 847,000 people getting the new COVID vaccine and we're probably going to see maybe 30 to 40% of the population get it who are eligible. I mean, we're well on our way to meeting those targets and those goals that we normally see every year. So I think people got the message and those who believe in the message are going to go and get it. Whereas those who never really thought about it or don't care about it or have their own hesitations probably are not going to get it anyways. And, and, and when you say get it, do you mean the flu shot or the COVID shot? Oh, and both. <laughs> when, it, when it comes to respiratory vaccines, I know that we're going to separate, you know, the influenza from the COVID-19, from the RSV. But at the end of the day, a lot of the people are just not going to go for whatever reasons. And it's, it's going to be irrespective of whatever that vaccine happens to be. Uh, does it make sense or is it being recommended that if you are in an older age group or in a more vulnerable age group, that is the group that really should be paying attention to this? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the BCCDC even has guidelines for who should be getting what kind of shots depending on what pre-existing condition they have. And in this case, and I hate to say it, age is a pre-existing condition. I'm in my 50s now. I have to get vaccinated for certain things because basically my immune system is just not what it used to be. So, I mean, as you're getting older or as you're having more chronic uh, illnesses, you're going to go into these specialty areas and then you're going to have more vaccines being um, recommended for you. But at the end of the day, everyone really should get a flu shot and everyone should really get the latest COVID-19 shot. It's just kind of common sense. Right. Even though we can look at the numbers and, and we know people are making those personal decisions and personal choices about that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, at the end of the day, a vaccine really is going to be a personal choice. But for someone who has seen what happens to people who did not get vaccinated and then end up with one of these diseases, like even with the flu, okay, like there's a good likelihood the flu is not going to 
kill you, but it could lay you down for three weeks and you're going to lose all that productivity. And if you happen to be a parent or something like that, that's the last thing you want to have happen to you. Whereas getting a shot in your arm and being sore in your arm for a day or two, you know, it, it, the, the trade-off is actually pretty good. <laughs> I mean, I have a, a friend who very, very phobic of n- needles, does not like needles at all, but came yeah. around uh, having kids, being around kids, realizing that, well, kids can actually be pretty susceptible to the flu. It can be dangerous. And so realize, <laughs> yeah. okay, fine, I will do this. I will do this for the, the greater good of the community and kind of sucked it up and did it, which I think there are probably more cases of that. Oh, yeah. And for those who do have an aversion to needles, there are programs now where you can say this uh, to the pharmacist or to the healthcare provider, and they can provide you with some kind of uh, distraction in order to for you not to notice it. Because it's the seeing the needle that's the problem for the most part. When you feel the prick in your arm, it's like there for half a second, you don't even realize it. And so that's more or less what we're what's trying to do is, is, is just distract you. So you're not thinking about that needle. And then when it's over, it's over, you get your bandaid and away you go. So the reality is, if you do have an aversion, don't be afraid of saying it, just mention it. And there will most likely be some kind of mechanism to be able to help you with that. All right, that is good advice. Jason, thank you so much. It was great to chat with you again. Oh, it was such a pleasure. Take care. As you've been hearing, tickets sold out within an hour and a half. Many people disappointed they did not get tickets to go to the Bright Nights train. It is back and will be operating this year, but not back at full capacity. One of the railway's four locomotives has been repaired, and the other three are still being repaired at this point. So... What does that mean, though, for the return of this much-loved event? Well, Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim spoke with Global News about this and talked about how corporate donations helped make this happen and brought everything together. We picked up the phone and uh, we raised a bunch of money, so we made money not an issue. And then we got a train expert to come in and help us um, and our team on how to fix this thing. And so we were able to do it very quickly. Um, So we have a train that's running right now. And I think it's important to note as well, there are a lot of individuals and corporations across the city who want to invest in their city. And I think that's a good thing. Absolutely. Absolutely a good thing. And people very happy that the train is up and running, but it is not running exactly the same as it was before. And joining us to talk more about this is CKNW producer and producer of this program, Ben Dooley. Hey, Ben. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you for doing this because it came to light that, yes, the train is back and, yes, the corporate donations were very much appreciated and needed to get the train expert and repair it, but it is not going to be accessible. It is not going to accommodate people uh, who use wheelchairs. Now, you are somebody who uses a wheelchair. What is your response to that? Uh, so my my initial reaction was that, you know, I, I'm not surprised because whenever, you know, stuff needs to be repaired or, or stuff is being built, it seems like the, the top priority is to get it working uh, for able-bodied uh, folks. And then uh, people who use wheelchairs like me are kind of uh, an oversight and, you know, it'll be ready for you when it's ready. It's not, not a priority. 
Uh, the park board put out a statement saying, uh, unfortunately, we won't be able to accommodate wheelchairs this year due to equipment constraints. While we have already placed an order for accessibility equipment, it couldn't be shipped in time to align with the Bright Nights operating schedule. However, we are actively working on modifying a carriage to accommodate wheelchairs as soon as possible. Uh, do you think that's an appropriate or is that a, a, an acceptable response? No, I don't. I think that, you know, uh, I, I, I don't know, you know, the full details of, of everything that goes on behind the scenes. But if, if uh, you know, the, the, uh, the disabled people were uh, a, a priority, then the equipment should have been ordered at the, the same time as it was um, to get the train ready for able-bodied folks, and and it would have been uh, ready to go for for disabled people. It it's not acceptable to me that uh, that disabled people are you know left behind uh, once again. Could it have been handled better, do you think, if, if they were looking at this and thinking, okay, now even if it was, we made a mistake, we're not going to have the accessibility equipment, it's just, this is such a loved uh, thing that people have been without for years, we really want to bring it back if we can. If they'd been up front and said and kind of been transparent about it, would that have made a difference? Because uh, I think one of the reasons we're, we're talking about this or we, we actually uh, have this information is Jordan Armstrong at Global was digging around and asking questions about this and, and found this out yesterday. Uh, if they had been more transparent, would that have made things any better? I, I don't think it, you know, totally uh, fixes the problem, but it, it certainly does make things better. You know, I, I just think of the parents that uh, waited in line yesterday, along with along with everyone else, and and got got tickets only to find out, you know, the the, the train wasn't accessible uh, for their for their child, uh, and and how upsetting that would be for the, for the parent. And and the child as well. I think you know if they had just come out and said, "Hey, unfortunately, um, the train is not going to be accessible uh, this year." You know, f- folks would would understand. But the fact that folks uh, were finding out as they had already you know gotten in line to purchase tickets uh, is is a is a problem for me. Because if we look back at the history of the Bright Nights train and the train that's that's used for uh, other festivities in the park as well, it, it has been in the past when it was operating. It was accessible, wasn't it? Yes, uh, the, the train has uh, has always been accessible. And uh, I was looking at the the um, city of Vancouver website today, and it advertises that uh, you know the the site is fully accessible. Uh, and it's only when you do some digging into the Bright Nights train that uh, it notes uh, at the bottom that statement that uh, that Jordan Armstrong uh, has about uh, about it not being accessible this year for the Bright Nights event. Right. So the the message there being the event, which I think is what's being pushed now, is that you're not going to get tickets for this train no matter what, unless you're buying uh, tickets that are now being resold. So the tickets are sold out, but uh, pushing the fact that the event itself, the bright nights and being there and, and soaking in the ambiance, that is accept, uh, accessible. But that's but even if you did get train tickets, if you're in a wheelchair, you're out of luck this year. Yeah, exactly. Um 
Yeah, it's it's an unfortunate, and it, you know, it's just another another example of of disabled people just uh, just being being left behind, and and it's unfortunate. Also, looking at this particular park, and you know that we talked about this on the program a few weeks ago when we talked about a field trip that was being planned and uh, one student who needed accessibility, needed some accommodation, was told that she couldn't go on the field trip. That was that was uh, solved. There, there was a solution that came forward. But we've talked about Stanley Park so much as well, with the bike lane in the park, with the access to some parking being restricted. And here's Bright Lights in the park as well. Does it what are your thoughts on the fact that that so much of this or this continues to be an issue specifically to Stanley Park? I, I, I think it's a huge issue. You know, um, we've been talking for years now about uh, the, the bike lane at, at Stanley Park and uh, whether uh, it presents accessibility challenges uh, for folks. And and then to have this, this happen, it kind of... Uh, makes you wonder if if folks uh, were really paying attention to um, the accessibility challenges with with the bike lane, and, because if they were, you know, then they would they would realize that uh, disabled people should be a top priority and and not just uh, not just an oversight. All right. Well, Ben, I appreciate you coming on the show and talking more about this. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.